Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Hand, pastor and teacher at Grace City Church. We're glad that you're here with us today for part seven and the final part of this short series, Worship in the Waiting. And what we're trying to do is kind of recognize this unique cultural moment that we find ourselves in with the COVID-19 pandemic, how it's put a lot of things on hold for all of us, um, brought measures of suffering and trials and challenges that are unique to this time right now. And we're going through various stories in scripture just to consider how is it that we continue to glorify and to enjoy God during a time like this. And in this final section of this series, I want to take you to Acts chapter 28 this morning, and we're going to consider briefly this character, the Apostle Paul, and the example that the Lord gives us in Paul. There's a modern folklore story that goes something like this. A little girl is sitting around the kitchen with her mom as her mom prepares dinner one night. The little girl says, Mom, why do you always cut the ends off the roast before you stick it in a pan and then stick it in the oven? And the mom kind of chuckles and says, well, I, I, don't, I don't really know. It's just the way that my mom always did it. And so I just, in copying her, have always done it that way. Why don't we pick up the phone and call her? So she calls grandma and she says, grandma, why do you always cut the ends off the roast? And grandma said, well, I, I don't really know. I think it has something to do with like absorbing the juices while it's, while it's baking in the oven or roasting in the oven. But, but I'm not sure. It's just my mom always did it that way. And so that's what I always did. And, you know, you should check with her. So little girl calls her great grandma, says, great grandma, why, why do you always cut the ends off the roast? Like mom does it, grandma does it. And they all say it's ultimately because you did it. Well, why did you do it? And great grandma kind of laughs out loud and says, well, sweetheart, the only reason that I cut the ends off the roast is because when your great grandfather and I were first married, we didn't have a pan that was big enough to hold a standard size roast. And I had to cut the ends off of it just to fit it in the pan to get it in the oven in the first place. I, I bring up this illustration because I think over time, we see a similar dynamic at work in the church. And that is that we confuse the essence of Christianity with our cultural practice of it. Or another way to say that, we confuse the mission with the methodology. And I think that, that one of God's great kindnesses to us in this pandemic, and I mean this seriously, is simply by taking away the normal way that we do most of how we do church. We are forced to adapt just to keep worshiping him corporately. We are forced to adapt to do spiritual formation and discipleship. We are forced to adapt in order to love and serve one another well. We're forced to adapt to do outreach and to share our faith and to share the compassion of Jesus with others. I believe that in the period that's coming on the heels of this pandemic, we could potentially as a church, and I mean capital C church, we could see more innovation in the church about how to worship and enjoy God and, and grow spiritually and reach the lost than we've seen in the last hundred years combined, simply because every church has forced to adapt and modify and consider, can we differentiate between the essence of what God is calling us to do and the normal cultural or personal preferential ways that we've just ordinarily done things. 
So this has been a discouraging season for me as it has been probably for all of you in some way. But when I think about this potential, that actually gives me tremendous hope for this next season that the Lord is going to be bringing us into in his time. We don't have to keep cutting the ends off the roast in church life, not really understanding why we're doing it. We can continue to do that either with the understanding of what that actually accomplishes, or we can stop doing it altogether if it better achieves the mission that the Lord has for us. Now, one of the people that excelled at this kind of adaptation, this kind of modification, was the Apostle Paul, who was widely considered the most significant missionary and church planter of all church history. His story is told in the book of Acts, which is why I have you turning there to the, the last chapter, which I'll come to in a moment, chapter 28. But as a church planter, as a missionary, Paul took multiple journeys that took him to places like modern-day Syria, Turkey, Greece, Crete, Cyprus, and eventually on to Rome. He planted churches in places like Syria, in Ephesus, Colossae, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, just church after church after church around the ancient Mediterranean world. He was planting thriving churches. Now, all of this came to a screeching halt one day when Paul finally made his way to Jerusalem. He's there worshiping in the temple, and he is arrested by his fellow Jews who were also religious leaders of the day. They charged him falsely with crimes against Rome, essentially sedition, claiming that he was out to take down Rome and the Caesar. And they sent him packing back in chains to Rome. And we do know from Romans 1 that Paul desperately wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel, but this certainly isn't how he wanted to get there. But then Luke, the physician turned historian, tells the end of this story in Acts chapter 28. So I want to read there with you, beginning in verse 16, Acts 28, verse 16. And this is, again, is Luke's firsthand account of seeing or at least hearing about what has just happened with Paul. So he says, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So picture him under house arrest, literally chained to a Roman soldier on different shifts throughout the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he's under house arrest. Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to speak to you and to, or to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, and they're referring to Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. 
when more, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, we see here for two years, Paul living under house arrest, under the hands under the authority of the Roman government, hoping one day to finally get his opportunity to speak to Caesar himself. But I have three things here I want to show you from this story that we can learn from the way that Paul waited out this trial. And here they are. I'll give them to you, overview, and then walk you through each one. Maintain your hope in King Jesus. Continue to make Jesus' mission your mission and adapt your methods for gospel impact. Okay, number one, I say maintain your hope in King Jesus. And I want you to just for a moment, put yourself in Paul's sandals. That from the moment you have given your life over to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, you have been passionate, almost like no one has ever been passionate about proclaiming the goodness and the greatness of the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus Christ. He was all about proclaiming the gospel everywhere he went, in every circumstance he found himself in. And it was just, it was not a comedy of errors. It was just one trial after another, after another. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28, which by the way is only like two thirds of the way through his ministry, but he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, what a, what a remarkable testimony that he's saying, suffering, persecution, resistance, just the elements being against me in a broken world, are not going to hold me back from pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ for my life. So he continues on through all those things, but now you find yourself imprisoned for Christ's sake, falsely accused by your own people, the Jews. And the mission that you want to make your life all about is now not seemingly possible. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling as you reflect on your current circumstances, chained to this Roman soldier next to you. 
with no privacy, no freedoms to come and go as you please. You know, I think we would engage with some form of cynicism as if like, this is what I get for serving God. This is what I get for keeping on, keeping on. You know, when the chips are down, when everything's stacked against me and I keep pressing on to find ways to proclaim Christ and this is where it lands me, I think there would be cynicism. I think there would be tremendous discouragement. There would be frustration, maybe even anger, maybe even despair. I think there would be hopelessness. Again, like this is just where serving God has gotten me. But we see in verse 17 what Paul's actually thinking, and it doesn't seem to be any of those things. I mean, he only waits three days under house arrest, and he's already devised a plan. I'm going to have all the Jewish leaders here come and talk to me about my experience, why I'm here. And we see in verse 20, he begins to tell them, look, I'm here. I'm under arrest. I haven't done anything wrong. It is the Jews that want to keep me in these chains, not necessarily the Romans. They tried to let me go until the Jews continue to falsely accuse me. And he says, so, so why is it that I'm here? And he says, let me tell you. He says, it's because of the hope of Israel that I am here in these chains. Let me explain that just for a moment. So the hope of Israel, what was the hope of Israel at this time? Well, it's, it's circa AD 60, okay, when Paul is in prison. And the Jews seem totally forgotten by God. I mean, they are, they are not a people gathered. They are a people scattered. They are people dispersed. They are under Roman rule. And the Roman rule is not especially kind to them, though they are tolerant, but they tax the living daylights out of them so that they can support the Roman government and the Ro Roman building projects and all of that sort of thing. And things are going from bad to worse because the, the, um, the Roman government has, has recently appointed a Caesar by the name of Nero, who was a complete despot and horrible man. So in the midst of all this scattering and suffering and trauma and imprisonment, basically, they're in exile. Israel's hope was that God would raise up a military and a political figure known as the Messiah, that he would be God's anointed servant to come to the people and through some kind of supernatural and natural power, deliver the Jews from bondage and set them free and bring them back to the land of Israel and restore the capital of Jerusalem, rule over them and, and bless them and renew them and restore them and transform their culture, not just for that generation, but for all time. That was the hope of Israel. And what's interesting is Paul says, I'm in prison because of the hope of Israel. But he doesn't mean I'm in prison because of that kind of picture that I just painted for you. He's not in prison because he believes in a Messiah. Do you know why he's in prison? He's in prison because he believes Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. And the problem is that Jesus of Messiah does not match up with the cultural and religious expectations that the Jews had for him. Because obviously Jesus was not a military and political leader. So look again at verse 23 and, and, and just listen for how you hear this. He's, it says, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, which was the hope of Israel, and trying to convince them about Jesus from both their own law of Moses and from the prophets. Then verse 30, 30 and 31 again, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to them, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what do we learn from this? Paul is saying our hope 
is not that we gain political power over other people who disagree with us, who have different morals, who have a different faith or no faith at all. That, that's not our hope. And he's saying our hope is not that we gain control over a geographic region. He's saying our hope is the present day rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all things as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And I want you to just look at this stunning paradox for a moment. Paul is literally chained to a Roman soldier without his freedom, without his dignity, and he's sitting here saying, eh, Nero is nothing. The Roman Empire is nothing. Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is the true sovereign here. His kingdom is the true kingdom, not the Roman Empire. Incredible. And I just want to ask you, do you have a hope like this that transcends the worst of your circumstances? And when you are stuck waiting, and it is painful, and many of you have lost your jobs, or you've lost uh, at least gainful employment where you're able to pay all of your bills, you've lost tremendous amounts of your savings, some of you are now living paycheck to paycheck if you have that hope, and you're starting to worry about how quickly will this rebound because I have fears about the future. My question again is, do you have a hope that, trans that, that transcends the severity, the hopelessness, the despair of those difficult circumstances? See, there's nothing like a pandemic to reveal to all of us what our actual functional hope is. Because as the pandemic has set in, as the effects of the pandemic have grown against all of us economically, culturally, socially, all these other ways, my guess is that some of us are starting to realize I thought my hope was Jesus, but I think my hope is actually in financial security. I think my hope was actually my job, my vocation, the, the, the path that I created, the, the years of education that I invested and where it would lead me, and, and this is all going away. So here's the first lesson that we see from Paul, is put your hope in something the worst trials can't take away from you. And this is why Paul, I think, is still chained there, and he's like, okay, if this is the worst you can do, and I don't mean that he was flippant, but he's just like, if this is the worst you can do, I still hope in a sovereign king with a universal kingdom, and he reigns, and he's in control. And do I, do I feel that right now? Do I sense the fullness of, right, of that right now? Absolutely not. But that is a bedrock faith that he has in Jesus Christ. And friends, I had to relearn this lesson all over again when this all went down back in March and we had to shut down Asterisk and not only cancel upcoming events, but refund a ton of money of deposits that were put out for those events. And Marty and I are looking at each other like, okay, how do we even pay our carrying costs to cover our ongoing expenses of this building even when it's shut down and nothing is going on? This was something that we had literally worked years on to bring to fruition and we had just opened, just opened. And as many of you know, April 19th, you know, is going to be our big church launch downtown. And a month before that, we're at home, we're scattered, we're not able to carry that out and don't honestly still know when that will ever happen in that way. So you know what it felt like is it felt like having your foot on the brake and revving the engines 
and then releasing that brake and flying down the runway and gaining speed and gaining speed and taking off and barely taking off and crashing just off the end of the runway and bursting into flames. And I had to wrestle through this with God and say, what is really my hope? You know, was my hope the income that this could have generated so that we could do church down here, basically for free? You know, was my hope the, the schedule and the plan that we had spent years dreaming about and then putting together and it just had started to work? Or was my hope in the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus, that, that the worst things that were happening to us in March, April, now May, going into June now, are all under the sovereign control of a God who loves us and gave himself for us. So the first thing we learn from Paul is to maintain our hope in King Jesus in the midst of our waiting. But now secondly, continue to make Jesus' mission your mission. Have you had to abort your mission since this pandemic really set in? Have you had to adjust or change your main goal or pursuit since being sent home? It's a little bit of a loaded question because if the answer is yes, then either your mission wasn't the right mission before or it's not the right mission now because the reality is Jesus' mission for our life is able to be pursued at the best of times and at the worst of times. When we have everything, when we have nothing, we can still pursue the same mission of Jesus Christ. In our church, we say it this way, our mission is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And it doesn't matter to me whether you're a pastor like me or you're a lawyer or a business person or a small business owner or an engineer or a doctor or an accountant, a landscaper, a programmer, a student, a teacher, an electrician, a server, a broker, stay-at-home parent, a retiree. It does not matter what your vocation is, your mission Jesus calls you to is to make and mature followers of him. See, the, the one thing your life is about, friends, if it's about nothing else, the one thing your life must be about if you claim to be a follower of Jesus is that you are working hard at glorifying and enjoying God and making much of Jesus to other people. So in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our waiting, we've got to fight to continue to make God's mission, Christ's mission, our mission. See, when Jesus came to this earth, I already said this, but he didn't come to set up a geopolitical kingdom with militaristic might and armies that, that did his bidding, did, did exactly what he told him to do. The Bible says he came to seek and save the lost. Luke 4, Luke 9 or excuse me, Luke 8, say that proclaiming the kingdom of God was the mission of Jesus. And he passed that mission on to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, where he says, now your mission is to go proclaim the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what do we find Paul doing here under house arrest? He doesn't fold. He doesn't abort the mission. He doesn't suddenly change to something else and say, oh, I thought that was important, but now I realize this other thing's important. You find it here. It says over and over in the text, He's proclaiming and testifying to the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus. He's like, I don't care how hard life is right now. The mission of Jesus is my mission. 
So just think back over the last week of your own life and think what was your functional mission? What was the central guiding principle that shaped what you did day by day, moment by moment? And if we're honest, I think some of us have to admit my mission is making money. My mission is making a name for myself. My mission is planning my work and then working my plan. My, my, my mission is having comfort and convenience. My mission is being successful. My mission is being happy in life. What's so wrong with being happy in life? And, and hear me out. I'm not saying there's anything intrinsically wrong with desiring those things. But just as I said about your hope, if your mission is something that, that suffering and that waiting can just take a wrecking ball to, then you don't have a durable mission. You don't have a durable ultimate objective and goal for your life that transcends the kind of circumstances that you could find yourself at any given time. You need a new mission to follow in Christ's footsteps and make his mission your mission. But now thirdly, and this goes hand in hand, Okay, so we are maintaining our hope in King Jesus. We are continuing to make Jesus' mission our mission. But then thirdly and finally, adapt your methods for maximum gospel impact. Okay, one of the extraordinary things about the Apostle Paul is how quickly and how readily he let go of his methods and let go of a specific way of saying what he was saying to teach people about Jesus, to teach people about grace and the kingdom of God. He was constantly adapting and contextualizing, and even though the mission never changed, he was constantly innovating so that he could best communicate that mission in Corinth, in Athens, in Berea, from a prison cell in Philippi, now chained to a Roman soldier in a house in Rome. In this, I think, his example and ours is Jesus Christ, ultimately. You know, Jesus basically never had the same conversation twice. I'm gonna read the Gospels. And it's amazing how nuanced and unique each conversation was because he saw every individual as an individual. And he didn't have a one-size-fits-all mold or just a stamp that, like, if you wanna know the Gospel, boom, it's these four laws or it's these three things. And, and those, look, they're great frameworks for sharing our faith. And I'm not down on those. But when culture shifts and things change and we can't continue to do the things that we've always done, we can look to our Jesus Christ, not, not just as a savior, which he is ultimately, but also as a very, very healthy example of how we have different kinds of conversations and different kinds of means and methods that we use with different people in different kinds of contexts to most clearly communicate the one good news. Back to Paul, his MO, his modus operandi was basically he goes to a new town. He first starts in the Jewish synagogue. He preaches in the Jewish synagogue and he preaches Jesus Christ as Messiah until they kick him out. And the moment they kick him out, he says, all right, it's fair game. I'm, I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And he go find God-fearing Gentiles, people that, that like feared the concept of God, worshiped the concept of God, but didn't know the name and the work of Jesus Christ. And he started proclaiming it to them. And some Jews would trickle over from the synagogue and he'd have some God-fearing Gentiles and he'd form a church and he'd disciple people and he'd raise up leadership and he'd move on and he'd do the same thing over and over and over again. Well, you see, he can't do that here in Acts chapter 28 because he's under house arrest. He can't do his M.O., so what does he do? It says he, he welcomes everyone to come to him. 
And it's incredible to be under house arrest and have a reputation for hospitality, okay? What's our excuse? But then secondly, and you may not know this from this text, but, but Paul starts writing again. And you know, during this two-year period of house arrest, he wrote the letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. All written during this time. So he testifies in Philippians 1, beginning of verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the entire imperial guard of Rome and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak without fear. So get what he's saying there in Philippians 1. He's like, at six hour shifts at a time, I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with the entire Praetorian Guard. The infamous Praetorian Guard has all heard one-on-one the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three churches in three different cities have received some of the most famous and familiar letters that we still cherish today as powerful words, ultimately from the hand and the heart of God for the church. He literally impacted now 2020. He's impacted over a billion people with a B. A billion people have read those letters that he wrote. So instead of sitting here and being like, well, I guess I can't do the mission anymore. He's like, okay, I got to figure out a new way to do the mission of proclaiming the fame of Jesus Christ, of declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. I got to adapt. And he actually ends up having a far greater impact because of his willingness to adapt the methods and the means of carrying out the mission. So let me just come back to us in closing. Friends, I I think it's obvious to all of us that we got shut down months ago and our standard way of doing church, I mean, since the day I was born, since the day I grew up in church, it, it still looks pretty much the same 40 some years later. But overnight, we had to change the way we did a number of things. And I'm not one of those to wring my hands and just say, what a terrible thing. I just can't wait until we get back to what we're doing before. I think it's it's a beautiful new thing. It's a fresh thing that God is doing. To use the words of Jesus and the analogy of Jesus, he's giving us new wine. And we can't keep trying to fill up the old wineskins that it used to fit in. We got to find new wineskins, new methods, new shapes, new forms to pour that new wine into so that more people come to know about Jesus. Over the past couple months, I've seen basically three different responses from the church, and I don't mean just our church, but the church in general. First group of people says, um, I'll see you on the flip side when things get back to normal. And, and literally, some of you probably aren't even hearing this because you said, peace out. Like, I'm not gonna do church online. I'm not gonna get a Facebook account so I can participate in live worship. I'm just, I'm gone. And when, when things are back at church, then I'll come back. Then there's kind of this middle group that says, well, I'll dip my toe into some of the new stuff, but I, I don't like it. And I want to make sure you understand that I don't like it. I don't like change, but I'll do some of it. And then there's this third group that says, you know what? Game on. Game on. Let's figure out something new, something even better to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ for our lives. Let's, let's change everything that we possibly can within the, the obedience of Scripture so I'm not talking about disobedience, but, but let's, let's change, adapt, innovate anything we can under the obedience of God's word to make sure that this mission is going forward right now and on into the future. 
Friends, in the absence of normal, how many of you carved out time this week to pray and to meditate, to journal, to strategize over what I'm talking about? Of like, this is the mission of God for my life and I can't figure out how to do it right now. So God, help me. I want to know your heart. I want to see new paths forward where I can share you, live for you, love you, enjoy you, and invite other people to do it with me. Because I'd encourage you to start dreaming and praying with me if you're not already. Start strategizing with me if you're not already. Because friends, as culture changes, and we are not going back anytime soon as a culture, I think that we will see lasting change in our culture in ways that will impact sociology and humanity going forward. And the church can't simply go back. We, we, we must go forward with new wineskins for the new wine. Back to asterisk for just a moment and then I'm done. When, when I got over the loss of income at asterisk, which, I mean, I was, I was kind of deeply discouraged for a number of weeks, just figuring out like, God, what are you doing? You know, this, this was for you. This was for your glory, and now it's just, again, it's like the airplane just took off, and it's in flames just off the end of the runway. And the Lord brought me to a place where I didn't even realize that months later I'd be preaching on this. But the first place he took me was just simply understanding that I have a sovereign king who's in control. And I can even have this conversation with my wife, and we often do. We don't understand why God let us put so much time and energy and money into something only to see it kind of crash and burn. We don't know. It doesn't make sense. But that's not our money, and that's not our time. That's God's. And he's sovereign, and he's king, and he rules and reigns over all things, not in the past and not just in the future, right now. He's in control. So I came to that place of just saying, God, I'm just going to let go of this because... I believe that you're king. I believe King Jesus, okay? But then secondly, something that's really helped me heal in my emotions and in my, I think, mental health, if I could put it that way, is just going back to this question, what was asterisk all about in the first place? Because if it's not all about making money, then I shouldn't worry about losing money. And if it's not all about making a name for ourselves, then I shouldn't worry about the fact that we haven't made any name for ourselves doing any of this. Asterisk was about one thing. We sat there and for years we prayed and meditated and dreamed and talked about how can we plant the heart of Christ Jesus in the heart of our city. And we did it in faith, in confidence that this is what God was leading us to do. And so when all the specific methodologies of how we thought we were going to do that with the church on Sundays and these different events and getting people together and, 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 and showing them a good time of building relationships with the artists and business people and the homeless and all these different groups and bringing them together for Christ's sake, you know, when that started falling apart, we're just like, God, how do we still do something that fits the mission? And the moment that kind of dawned on us, it was a no-brainer to just turn it over to St. Francis Center and say, you know what, for now, when we need social distancing to keep people safe, to keep them alive, this best serves the corner of Broadway and Park Avenue as a socially distanced homeless shelter where people can get in out of the cold, now the heat of the day, where they can be fed multiple meals a day, 
where they can have heat and air conditioning and a restroom and sanitation where someone can look them in the eye and give them a little bit of dignity as someone made in the image of God? Is it the means and the method that we thought we were going to be doing right now? No, we thought we'd be launching a church and God would bring all kinds of people and we'd be rah, rah, go get them. And that's not what it looks like, but we walk forward in faith. And I just want to end this series, Worship in the Waiting, with this invitation again that, that all of you who are hearing me, join me in praying and meditating and dreaming. Let's not be in a hurry to just go back to the way things were. Let's say, God, how can we go forward into something new, into something creative, into something fresh? And I'm not talking about creative just for the sake of creativity. I'm talking about creativity for the sake of the mission, for the sake of Jesus Christ. So once again, your one big truth, get a mission and a hope in Jesus that never change. Then constantly find new ways to invite other people in to what God is doing.